0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Uh, Before I go on, please do me a favor. Consider becoming one of our Patreon sponsors, where you donate anywhere from uh, $1 to $5 a month. That helps us remain ad-free. Obviously, it helps us produce our publications, both on our YouTube channel and our Facebook page, as well as this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. And to all those that have already done this, thank you so much. Um, please always feel free to reach out with any questions or requests you might have. And of course, always feel free to come visit and train with us. We would welcome you greatly. Thank you. This episode is going to be on Kihon Waza. And to be forthright, like I have been in a way, dreading this episode. I think that dread has led work become more than it might actually be. Um, My fatigue more than it might actually be. And just my overall busyness more than it might actually be. That dread has made me keep pushing back the recording of this topic for multiple weeks now. And why? You know, what is the reason? And I would say, uh, one, it has to do with the nature of these podcasts for me. You know, I like the free talk. I like the ability to just speak off the cuff, almost like a G-Waza. You know, there's a kind of jazz spontaneity to all of these episodes. They kind of are what they are. And, um... I don't want to move away towards any kind of planned script, or, or towards any kind of planned script. Um, those kind of podcasts don't interest me um, when I'm listening to them. Just like the short format, I don't, I don't like those episodes myself. Um, I know there's all kinds of people that prefer a five to, you know, twenty minute podcast and. I'm just not a fan of those. I don't think you can get deep enough uh, into the material and um personally, I'm not interested in that kind of dabbler listener. I think those dab I think dabbler culture and the and the normalization of dabbler mentalities is really part of the problem that has made this great art of ours uh ugly and impractical and no longer viable either martially or spiritual so. I just don't want to cater to the dabbler. And um, I like to go as deep as I can and as deep as I'm taken, and a script would kind of get in the way there. However, this topic of kihonwaza, what it is and what it is not, I think is so central to the crisis that Aikido is in. And I know there's some people out there who want to pretend that there is no crisis, Just, but I would say there's people out there right now that believe the West is not at a crisis uh, point either. What do you call those people? Uh, They're just blind, blind people, small picture people. They can't see the issues at hand. And Aikido is in a crisis in terms of what it is, what, how do you do it? Who's gonna do it in the next generation? What's it going to look like? It is all up for grabs. What currently appears grabbable, you know, what are the options? Um, They're just bad options. There is this crisis. And at the center of it is how one defines and thereby how one understands and utilizes Kihon Waza is central. This is central. And that means that this is such a broad and huge topic that my off-the-cuff talking on it and let my mind go wherever it will go, I mean, from this side of the podcast here at the beginning, it just seems like I'm setting out in some one-man raft into an ocean where I have no idea if there, where the land is on the other side or if there is even land on the other side. And has led to my hesitation on this matter. I share this so that the listener understands this is, this is it. This is huge. This is absolutely the key problem. And I think the solution that I came up with is I'm going to allow myself to do this in multiple parts. And I also preface the recording of this podcast with a, a blog entry titled um, On Self-Defense. Here I'm going to use that blog entry as the intro or the part one into a series on what is Kihon Waza in Aikido. So I'm going to read this blog article, and like I've done before, I'll stop and elaborate more on what was said so that a reader who did read it can get more out of it, and those who do not subscribe to our blog uh, can get their first glance at it from this perspective. Because my first disagreement with modern Aikido, in which a listener by now knows, I mean that phrase, modern Aikido. It's a, it's a derogatory term that I use. It is a deviation away from the true art. It is a degeneration of the true art. For me, one of the main problems that Kihonwaza Waza presents to modern Aikidoka is that Kihon Waza is not culturally understood is not technologically understood by which I mean in pre-modern culture the cultures that developed the technology of Kihon Waza or of Kata it was understood differently and in short here without having to say how at this point It's because we fail to understand Kihonwaza, kata, in its proper sense that it no longer functions for us in the way it did for pre-modern practitioners, which would include up to Morihei Ueshiba. So we cannot do with Kihonwaza, put it another way, we cannot do with Kihonwaza what O-sensei could do with Kihonwaza. Why? Because we use Kihon Waza differently than he did. Why? Because we understand it differently, comma, incorrectly, from how he did. This difference in understanding is, as I said, a cultural one. And when you're looking at a difference in culture, you're talking about differences in terms of epistemology, And I would also put in there, in terms of reasoning and in terms of uh, soteriology, cosmology, a lot of the things that moderns threw out as the proverbial baby with the bathwater when they opted to feel superior to past cultures, to feel more advanced than past cultures, and to, in essence, what could in short, be described as their effort to secularize the art and or to market the art. Those things go together. This is why in many episodes and many videos I always refer to a practitioner who wants to be able to do the things, be the things that they saw in Osensei. Those things... They learned about sensei that motivated them towards the practice of this art. In order to become of that kind of being, a person living today, regardless if it is here in the United States or in Europe or Japan, they have to do an archeology span of the art, by which I mean they have to perform a critical introspection of the current art's history, institutions, and associated capital systems. Otherwise, everything gets skewed and tainted through the view or the gaze of those things, and by which you can't understand Kihon Waza, and you come up with some weird modern ideas that just make no sense. They, they make sense enough to sell it, but not sense enough to be either martially viable or spiritually viable. They become impotent technologies, impotent in their ability to reproduce another Aikido practitioner at the founder's level. One of the most common mistakes, and it's not not made by every single modern practitioner, Or, you know, let's say, because this is a... And I have to mention names in this episode, so um, this this is not the time, these are not the days to be courteous and polite. These are the days to point things out. These These are recordings for future Aikidoka. So something that Chris Hine has said many times, and I totally agree with him on this matter, you have camps of modern practitioners who outrightly believe that Aikido Kihonwaza is self-defense training. And then you have probably by now the larger population, at least in the West and in those countries that have adopted a victim mentality to the West's material success, those countries that, for lack of a better word, idolize the West and seek and pursue a westernization of their own culture as a kind of advancement. In those areas, there's probably a larger population of current Aikido practitioners who will say Aikido is not about self-defense. But when you push them deeper, as Christopher Hine has noted, they still hold the belief that Aikido Kihonwaza is self-defense. Meaning that if push came to shove, right, if you're doing your Tenkon and you're adopting their point of view, and they're adopting your point of view, and yet they persist in their assaulted behavior, then you could go ahead and do one of those kihon waza, and you you would be able to neutralize them, of course, in a way that would not injure them, but it would function. And then you probably have a very, 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 very small segment of the Aikido population who does outright go, no, kihon waza, is not about fighting, not at all. It will not ever function as fighting. It's not designed to function as fighting, even in a pinch, even when that attacker will not adopt your point of view and push had to come to shove, and then, no, doesn't. Again, if we look at the institutional and capital organization of Aikido, I mean, you have to put that in the larger institutional framework of martial arts in the West. And again, you, can't, you can no longer draw a distinction between martial arts in the West and martial arts in Japan. That, that does not exist. In many, many ways, martial arts in Japan are more westernized than martial arts in actual western nation states. So this is something that I learned very quickly with a romantic idea. You go to Japan and you realize, holy cow, this is a martial art for nerds. That's their own words. These are martial art for the non-athletic people. The athletic people are all in Western sports. you are super athletes. And you're going to have to stick judo in that category now. But they're playing baseball and basketball and soccer, etc. And then your intellectual stars are in the business world. They're not going to train in Aikido multiple hours a day, every day. So actually, when I got there and I realized this, it's actually impossible to find a school where they're training multiple hours a day, every day including weapons work, including self-defense, including sparring, including ground fighting. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. So I actually quit when I was in Aikido. I quit Aikido in Japan because ah, was no, there's nothing there. What we had to do as a solution eventually is I met other Aikidoka of like, of like mind, both non-Japanese and Japanese, and we kind of made our own little traveling dojo, where we mapped out classes in the Kansai area where I lived, and we would just take trains and buses and bikes, and we would figure out how to get training every day by training somewhere between, you know, five and seven different dojo. But even then, I knew quickly, you know what, there's a more authentic Aikido in San Diego, California. Another example of this would be um, an eastern region shihan who took his deshi back to Japan only to publish an interview after the fact wherein he said Budo's dead in Japan. Well, what, are, what, are, what is, what is a, a person trying to note with such experiences, such Phrases is that Western culture has westernized and is westernizing Japan. Because Budo is a pre modern East Asian culture. It's not only geographically located in a different place, but historically it is located in a different time. So for example, my my time when I would go train in San Diego, it not only felt like I traveled half the state south, but I went back in time. This was also the experience when I trained with my Kenpo teacher. He lived at the border of California and Oregon. And it seemed as I got closer, you know, went more north in this 12-hour drive, that I went back in time. The time when the mentor-disciple technology was fully functioning. Very different from today's Aikido sensei friend, class leader, you know, Sensei Dave. Very, very different. If you take my wife's experience, because, you know, I would be gone up in Northern California, there at the border, and my instructor lived with permission on native lands. And he basically lived in a clearing that was made in the middle of the Redwoods. And everything was self-sufficient. My wife didn't have to do any of the training. She didn't have to do any of the discipleship. But it was very, very difficult for her to be there. Because although still in California, still in the United States, we went back in time. And as anybody who's ever traveled to a culture that is entirely different from your culture, there's a kind of uncomfortability that is constantly setting upon you with no identifiable source. And that happened to her. Eventually she just stopped going with me. She couldn't take the teleportation back in history so there is no for all practical purposes there is really no distinction nowadays between the United States American aikido Japanese aikido but there is a great difference between American aikido Japanese aikido and O sensei's aikido because of that difference in historical periods. But what is common between, let's just call it westernized Aikido or modern Aikido, let's use the the nomenclature modern Aikido so it doesn't throw people off and they start thinking there's a difference with Japanese Aikido. Because modern is Western, westernized. What marks modern Aikido, as I said, is the intimate relationships between its institutions so this would be its institutions of transmission, its institutions of organization, its pedagogical institutions, the relationship between its institutions and its capital systems. This is thoroughly western, thoroughly modern. They all they go together. They work together. This is why you have what in essence is a kind of Ponzi scheme, do you see? You you have this instructional hierarchy, but that instructional hierarchy is simultaneously a political hierarchy, and it also provides a market direction. So funds are collected at the bottom, and those funds go up the hierarchy, up that organization. So you have, for example, to be specific, you have your Shihan, they're at the top, People align themselves under a shihan, both politically, they pay the shihan, they do seminars, and they exchange material capital for symbolic capital, belt ranks, titles, privileges, things like that. And within that organization, if you, had, if you go, where's the pulse for this thing? That pulse is kihonwaza. The heart of it is Kihon Waza. What contemporary practitioners do not understand, and a lot of them get upset, like they can't figure out why do you keep talking about this crap? Just show me these videos so I could be entertained. What they don't understand is that if you do not liberate yourself from that system, you cannot stop thinking with that system. And you cannot stop believing with that system. And if you do not stop thinking nor stop believing with that system, you cannot achieve those things that are outside of that system. And for example, true Ike, not true Ike like that one guy on the internet who calls himself true Ike and never moves and he's just doing these weird mechanical things like I don't even know what that's about. The true Aiki, true Kokyu, and again, I've given the listener many ways to, to note amongst all the concentric understandings of those two words, which are valid. That concentric nature of the terms is valid. That is a historically accurate understanding. But you should still be able to see these two distinctly observable aspects, the Kokyu projection and the Aiki adhesion. Those things are not in Kihonwaza and you cannot develop them in the Kihonwaza as the modern institutions and market systems function today. You cannot. This is why it is not a coincidence that Aikido practitioners today will see videos where someone's bouncing off of me, projecting away from me, or stuck on me, and they themselves, as Aikido practitioners, go bullshit. Meaning, it is beyond their scope of imagination even. The very defining characteristics of the art are not even believable to people who practice the art. Or... Takamusu Aiki. Another first principle delivered by the founder, that you can do Aiki, you can do adhesion under spontaneous conditions. You don't see it. You see choreography. Okay, why? Because the purpose of Kihon Waza in contemporary Aikido, in modern Aikido, is that institutional framework is that capital framework. And you're never going to accomplish these things if you stay within it. Why? Because you can only think with it and you can only believe in it. And it has no interest in these other things. Why? Because you cannot buy Aiki, you cannot buy Kokyu, you cannot buy Takamusu Aiki. You cannot buy it. And if you cannot buy it, then they cannot sell it. And because of the westernization of, including Japan, but the whole world, including Japan, what cannot be bought and sold is not real. Well, What, is, what can be bought and sold? Technique. Techniques, just raw external levers, force engines. Well, what's the point of that? self-defense, some martial art. And again, I know there's a large majority of Aikido people who will say that is not self-defense is not the true goal of Aikido. But again, I agree with Christopher Hine. When you push them, you're going to see they have that same understanding of the so-called Aikido martialists. Push comes to shove, they could do this ikkyo or they could do that idimi nage or they could enter and they could do that itemi, do you see? There is some sort of worldly practical end to to kihonwaza as part of a martial art. So when you talk about kihonwaza and you want to do that archaeology, you want to get back to what was the pre-modern technology of kihonwaza and of kata what was it that pre-modern man was trying to use these devices for and how did they use them? You're going to have to do that archaeology. And when you do that archaeology, when you start to free yourself from the current institutions and the current capital systems that develop how you think and what you believe and therefore what you do not think and what you do not believe, you're going to have to start with this Very first premise, and it's this: Kihonwaza is not self-defense. And once you say that, you're going to have to distinguish yourself from that large majority of Aikidoka who will say that, agree with that, but actually still hold the same philosophical first premises, as the Aikidoka martialist does, who believes outright and openly that Aikido should be and is self-defense. You're going to have to now thereby define what is self-defense. And that's where this blog article comes in. Because I think you'll see my view is entirely different from that larger majority within the Aikido ranks. But it also disagrees in essence with the Aikido martialist. The Aikido martialist who attempts to use Kihonwaza for self-defense purposes is not teaching self-defense. They're teaching some other crap. Again, crap in the West and any non-Westerner knows this. The West sells crap. This, even in the West, we know it. Because we always know those places that don't sell crap anymore. You know, we're going to get our handmade boots. I mean, let's take uh, Origin, Maine. This is Jocko Willink's company. What, what is the market space for Jocko Willink's products? Is he's going to make stuff the way America used to make stuff. Built to last. Excellent craftsmanship. And he's gonna get old machinery that can actually build that stuff. And then he's gonna train his personnel to utilize those, that old machinery. And then they're gonna make boots that can last generations. Or in law enforcement, you're, you're going to buy, you know, your Solomon boots, you're going to buy your Merrill boots, and then you're tired of buying these boots, like, every so many months. And you're just finally going to go, I'm going to get the handmade ones from Danner. Danner is an Oregon company, and they've now been in existence for probably over a century now. Or you look at, again, in law enforcement, you have these Wonder 9s. That's what they were called originally. So you have your polymer pistols, you have your Glock, and you have your M&P and your SIG P320s, and you're just tired of that three-pound spectrum trigger, those loose tolerances, they say, are for your own benefit, you can't really ever get confident in your shot placement, and you spend probably more on the pistol upgrading it to get it shootable. And you're going to get tired of it, and you finally go, no, 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 I, I, I'm going to go back to a, a good old-fashioned American craftsmanship, where they were skilled craftsmen, they utilized the mentor-disciple model in making other skilled craftsmen. Things are made by hand, fitted, and now oh, now you're rocking a staccato. And there's no going back. Now, even in the West, we know, we know. We make things that are by design via market strategies to fall apart. This is because the goal is no longer customer loyalty customer satisfaction. The goal is just profit. There's no more pride in the craft you're making. We see the same exact thing. As, as Budo has been westernized, we see the same exact thing in Aikido because that's how culture works. Cultural principles spread out across the culture. And if profit enters into one arena, and if you get more profit by not putting emphasis on customer satisfaction or the skill at which something is made or the masterpiece nature of what you're making that's not at all what you're using to make your profit anymore, And it becomes something else, such as we actually make more profit by making things that break so that they, people have to buy it again. That, that kind of mentality will seep into other things like even Aikido and becomes normalized. So the Aikido martialists who claim openly Aikido needs to have a self-defense aspect to it, it is a self-defense, it is a martial art, that's why we're in a crisis. They're also wrong. In fact, they're more wrong. They are more wrong a glimmer into how incorrect they are has been said by, I won't mention names here, but it wasn't me who said it, but it's so right on point. A glimmer at how incorrect they are as they try to make Aikido martial, as they try to utilize Kihonwaza as self-defense according to modern self-defense market industry strategies. Is that they actually suck at Aikido. They're terrible at it. They have no flow. They contest. They obviously have no internal skills. They yong yong everything. They don't have good stances. They don't have good movements. Their handwork is all choppy and linear. It's terrible Aikido. Terrible, terrible Aikido. Then on top of it, it's terrible self defense. Why? That's what we're going to get into. Why is it terrible self-defense? Because it's not self-defense. So let's start the blog. What is self-defense? The title of the blog is On Self-Defense. And I will post or I'll paste a copy of the blog link in the episode notes. So you can read it for yourself at your own pace without my interruptions. And you can share it with others. So On Self-Defense. It is very simple. The tactical priority in self-defense is the preservation of self. You got to start from first principles. Why? why? Why start there? Well, it's because current self-defense reasoning, driven by market rhetoric, sooner or later gets into what's realistic and what's not realistic. This is like their banners. And when they decide what is realistic and unrealistic, they're really talking about probability. It has the, the, it masquerades as possibility, but it's actually probability. So something is realistic and therefore deemed practical and it is deemed practical because it's probable. Something that is not realistic is impractical because it has been deemed improbable. So an example, I posted once a video on rifle disarms. And immediately the Aikido martialists were like, this is not realistic. And when you looked at why is it not realistic? Because you're never going to get close like that to a rifle. You see, it's not probable. But what determines probability is their own parameters of thought and their own parameters of belief, which are constructed by the institution. Which institution? The self-defense institution. So the self-defense institution, its market, it, the group it markets to, is the unarmed civilian and unarmed civilians are not confronted by rifles. However, in law enforcement, we have rifles all the time being deployed. And we face rifles being deployed by bad guys all the time. And we bring those rifles in very small, confined areas. That person has no idea what it's like bringing a rifle inside. A home or an office or school and they do not not understand therefore how likely it is that you're in grabbing range of a rifle and therefore how probable it is that you can grab it and therefore how practical it is to know how to disarm rifles and how to prevent your rifle from being disarmed so for the modern the Western self-defense industry which again is going to include Aikido. You talk about real, realistic, practical, but you're really talking about probability. Alright, here's the thing. Just as you would say, I would never, it's not practical to learn a rifle disarm because you're never going to face a rifle. When you're looking about what you're probably going to be facing, in terms of what is the challenge to your preservation of self, your greatest assaulter is you. It's not some Hollywood-derived, crazed lunatic out there. It's you. Overwhelmingly, it's you. And you will attack yourself, and you will succeed... Anywhere from making yourself physically ill, mentally ill, sabotaging your relationships and your support systems, impoverishing yourself, making yourself homeless, up to suicide, killing yourself. Overwhelmingly, in terms of probability, that is who you are likely to be assaulted by. You. So if the first premise of self-defense is the preservation of the self, and you are in a real martial arts self-defense school, you're going to learn how to defend yourself from you. If you're not, you're not dealing with what is most probable, and therefore your training is impractical and unrealistic. Continuing, out of all the possible threats to the self, the self is by far the most likely assailant. As such, a true self-defense system would address this fact and would thereby include problematizing all the ways we contribute to our own unwellness. That is, all the ways we contribute to our mental illness, to our physical illness, to our unhealthy social relationships, and to any and all of our at-risk behaviors. The idea of a practitioner that spars well under a kickboxing rule set or an MMA rule set, but that suffers from anxiety or depression and or that is socially alienating and or that self-medicates legally or illegally is good at self-defense is actually not true such a person such a person actually sucks at self defense yet how many self defense schools do we see that actually address the most common threat of self nearly none most in practice actually contribute to such unwellness now not said in the blog this is not a cute little play on logic and reasoning This is something that pre-modern martial arts knew extremely well, meaning they address this not only as a first premise of training, but there is a tactical component to it that it is addressed for. Why? What is it? Pre-modern systems based in thought that we would today call Taoist or Confucianist or Buddhist, pre-modern budoka, understood very well that the ego, the identity in the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, is a martial weak point. That identity, and by how it is developed through the human mind, sows attachment, and fear, and with that, a lack of adaptability and valor in the warrior. So let's take, for example, go back to law enforcement, and we'll put it in modern terms, because it's a very, very deep psychology that pre-moderns had, and a very advanced and sophisticated psychology that the pre-moderns had on the warrior's mind, because it was derived from those schools of thought. Daoist, Confucianist, Buddhist, Silk Road culture. In our terms, in modern terms, we say that your ego tripartite mind generates an experience of the world. It simultaneously brings a genesis to the ego identity, a dichotomous experience of the world, and a behavioral spectrum of attraction and avoidance. This mind is ours by nature, but it does not function at the level that the pre modern warrior sought in its most highly cultivated men of arms. It tends to get attached, it tends to get triggered, it tends to fall victim to fear, it'll freeze, it'll flight, it's easily manipulated, it suffers. It tires, it loses the mission objective, it cannot adapt, it has no grit. When you look at modern warrior schools, they attack this mind in all of their selection elements. This, the, the classic American military almost training slogan is, they're gonna break you down and then they're gonna build you up. What does that mean? What's the breaking down? What's, what is that? What's breaking down? They're going to deconstruct that ego-tripartite mind for you. But warrior schools have been doing this from the very beginning because that ego-tripartite mind sucks at human-be-human violence. And as you go higher in the tiers of operators, you're looking at individuals who can willfully deconstruct that ego-tripartite mind whenever necessary to meet the mission objective. They can reconcile fear, they can reconcile pain, and they can let go of the self because all those three things come from the same source, the ego-tripartite mind. They are not triggerable. They do not fall for fakes and faints. They do not get lured in. They do not get attached to one particular idea or one tactic, and they can adapt on the move. This is why true Budo always addresses the mind. Because the ego tripartite mind sucks as a warrior. It's terrible. Equally, this is why true Budo can and does function as a wellness practice today. But only if it is deconstructing this ego-tripartite mind. And there's ways to do it. But modern Aikido does not know those ways anymore. You have to do the archaeology to get to those ways. So there is a martial aspect to this wellness aspect. But there's also a probability, a practicality, and a realistic aspect to this wellness aspect. It's both. You are your worst enemy, you are your worst enemy outside of combat engagement, and you are your worst enemy inside combat engagement along this understanding of how and why and to what end the warrior mind should function. And the idea that you can come in to a dojo pay some fee, and learn some techniques, and you're now going to be viable martially, is totally ignoring this mind aspect. Again, why? Because you can't purchase the warrior mind. You can't buy it. If you can't buy it, then we can't sell it, and therefore it's not real. We're going to take it out. When they take it out, they assume its presence. They assume you're going to be ready to do the violence. They assume you're not gonna have PTSD from the violence. They assume you're not gonna cower in fear. How? Because we're gonna show you this technique. This is just idiocy. So in terms of probability, this is where training must start and stop. And in terms of actual application, this is at the center. So when you look at actual warriors, I'm talking about people who have done it. And I'm not talking about your little bar fights and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about people who face death. So you're looking at people who have professional ends to violence. These are your law enforcement officers. These are your military personnel, but those military personnel that face death. When you look at those people and they get to what are the components of martial viability, at the top of the list is mind, not grappling. Not wrestling. Not boxing. Mind. And if you go back in time, mind. What kind of mind? A will mind. Not the unhealthy mind. Not the mind subject to suffering as noted in the Four Noble Truths. Not that mind. Continuing. Next, but far down in tactical possibility from the former, a lot lower than the marketing campaigns of the self-defense industry would mislead us to believe are the threats from others. In these cases, following sound strategy, one should prioritize anti-exposure tactics as the number one self-defense solution. All right, so let's, what did I just say? Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, Most of the time, you're your biggest enemy. You are your biggest assaulter, overwhelmingly. Way, 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 way. Way down from that comes assaults from others. And your best self-defense strategy in dealing with assault from others is not going to be your fighting not gonna be your boxing and your wrestling and your ground fighting. It's going to be your anti-exposure tactics. Again, why? Because we're talking about real violence. So let's take the two rules of a handgun fight. Shoot the bad guy, don't get shot by the bad guy. In those two rules, Tactical priority goes to the second rule. Don't get shot by the bad guy. Tactically, that is your anti exposure tactics. So, very, very common. As a law enforcement trainer, I see this all the time. But I see the same sentiment in the Aikido martialists. They believe that football myth of the best defense is a good offense. Now that's not true. It has never been true mentally. It's never been true martially. It's definitely not part of jiu-jitsu. So as I watch officers training and force on force training, it's always very common at first that they move away from cover and or do not use cover or in concealment and get very aggressive. And as a trainer or my partners on the training cadre, we understand and can utilize cover and concealment. And now look at it. There's a couple things that happen that show you why you want to use anti-exposure tactics, first and foremost, over a good offense is all you need. In terms of shot placement, it has a lot to do with target availability. So if we're barely peeking out, And all you can see is our handgun and our dominant eye. That's the size of target you have to hit under stress. Under rapidly evolving tense situations. Your your odds of hitting that, even as close as seven yards, is next to none. But you're out in the open. You have the full body now as your target. You're going to hit that target. You also get to be stabilized. You're going to hit that target. And usually what happens when you play anti-exposure tactics, the person is going to move into terrain that has already been made an advantage to you because they've moved out from behind cover and concealment. So for example, you're using a corner of an automobile. Let's say you're using, you, you've aligned the A, a b and c pillars you're at the back of the car and you've pied that c pillar for that alignment such that just your dominant eye and your handgun is is available as a target to the person that is trying to play the engine block and they can't hit your target so they now move out from the engine block area and they move parallel to That A, B, and C pillar, well, they just moved into a firing lane that you were already dominating. So for those that can't picture this, imagine there's a machine gun, and it's firing, and you were kind of okay where you were, but you were out in the open, and now you just moved into its stream of bullets. You're toast. Anti-exposure tactics are huge, and they go back. They go way back, and they have never left military science. So, you will see them in Sun Tzu, for example. And you will see them in the modern American military manuals. It's key because you're playing for keeps. It's not a video game. When you read Sun Tzu, again, he's writing, he's part of that Silk Road culture. And he's going to use yin-yang theory. He's going to use the thought, the same thought that was considered true in both Taoist thinking, Confucius thinking, but also Buddhist thinking. All that culture, all yin-yang theory, he's using the same principles of truth that were accepted culturally along that trade route. And when you read that, those, that text, you're going to see all of the strategy that you see in Structurally, in Aikido, Kihon, Waza. And you're, that's why you see a lot of anti-exposure tactics in within Aikido, Kihonwaza. But what's more spelled out in the Sun Tzu, it's about economy. Exposure is costly. Anti-exposure is economical. Meaning, let's go back to our little gunfight here. I can use less rounds to get my hits on. I can use less energy because I'm not moving around. I can use less concentration because I don't have multiple, multiple elements that I got to multitask with. It's economical. And again, in real fighting, you don't have an unlimited amount of resources, so economy counts. This is why in Newaza, before you had weight categories, and its, and it's aim was to be used in the streets, or on the battlefield, you still saw economy. It's what marks its slow pace, which modern jiu-jitsu players can't understand. But they change the environment. They have a clock, they have weight categories, they don't have weapons, you're not allowed to strike. What are you starting to see? You're starting to see systems of human-be-human violence such as wrestling, that did not have the same economy mandate. But wrestling was never a battlefield art. So you'll have modern jiu-jitsu players, and they're like, hey, when your instructor tells you to relax and tell you not to use your muscle and to try to slow things down, they're, they're screwing you up. You need to be intense. You need to go hard and fast. Again, they're forgetting. You now have a weight category, buddy, and no one's allowed to punch you, and there's no friends coming in, you see? They're gaming the rule set. So anti-exposure tactics are key, and you would train in them. So you would, be, you would be trained in your self-defense school to not expose you to environments, terrain, where you're likely to encounter that extremely rare, rare possibility that you're actually attacked by others. So again, you play the probability game. Where and who are you likely to to be assaulted by, okay? A cop can tell you. It's almost impossible. It's it's almost unheard of that women are attacking you, women are assaulting you. So you can just look at the incarceration rates. It's men. And then as you look at what's involved, where and when do men do this, and you look for common elements, it's intoxicated men. So you're, you, you are working at Super Bowl Sunday, 4th of July. You know this is where all, this is where all the crimes start to happen. Why? Because everyone's drunk. Hence, you have laws on intoxication, on open containers, uh, open containers in vehicles, etc. This is why your city has sobering um, places. Do you know, do you know why? Because so many people are arrested due to intoxication that it's, it's cost-prohibitive to arrest them because, for example, a police, depart, a police department might have some sort of jail in air quotes here, but the jail is the county. It's the sheriff's office. So when a police department arrests someone here and they have to eventually transport them to the county jail, they have to pay a fee because it's not technically their jail so these cities will develop sobering centers they get around that fee why do you so why do you have sobering centers because it's cost prohibitive for municipal police departments why because that's who commits these crimes that's who commits assault and battery overwhelmingly if we're talking about probability that's what you're likely to face drunk males And if you now look for demographics in terms of age group, it's not drunk 60-year-olds, 65-year-olds. No. It's drunk males of what evolutionary biologists would call mating ages. So again, you look who's being arrested, and they're somewhere in your 18 to upper 20s. That's who's doing it. Coincidentally, that's who's training in your martial arts self-defense industry schools. Weird. I became an arrest control instructor for the state of California before I was a peace officer. I didn't really have much exposure to law enforcement at that time. The coordinator of our Law Enforcement Academy reached out to me. He wanted to have an advanced arrest control program made. So he reached out to me as a civilian. And I thought, I didn't think anything of it. I was like, yeah, yeah I, I, I know my stuff. Of course, they're going to reach out to me. So yeah, oh, okay. And he's all, hold on. I need you to get fingerprinted. And we need to do a background check on you. And I was like, what? You're asking me, buddy. And he kind of saw the shock on my face. Believe me, I wasn't that rude. I didn't out, out loud say that. But he, he could see the shock on my face because this is a retired uh, LAPD sergeant. He had over 30 years on the street. This man is a trained observer. And he goes, look, I don't mean to insult you at all, but in my experience, most martial artists have a criminal background. Why is that? Well, the demographics overlap. Interesting. Again, if there's any law enforcement listeners here, you probably know if you're training and you're training in one of those schools that really touts the self-defense nature of the school, so let's say, you know, one of the grappling, wrestling, boxing schools, I would not be surprised if you're there sparring with people you arrested the previous weekend. You know that's true. And you're not sure if this person's choking you out because they're just a little intense or maybe they're a little angry at that arrest that happened. Very, very common in law enforcement because the demographics overlap. All right, so if that's your probable assaulter and you're going to use anti-exposure tactics, then you're going to want to stay away from places where they congregate. You're going to want to stay out of the red zone, so to speak. This is another terrain um, concept. You have a red zone. The red zone is where the assault is likely to occur. Rules of the red zone. Don't go into the red zone if you don't have to. That's rule number one. That's your anti-exposure. Don't stay in the red zone any longer than you have to. Bring as much advantage with you into the red zone if you have to go into it. There, you're talking about firepower, you're talking about numerical advantage, etc. But the first two rules keep you the most alive. Don't go into the red zone unless you have to. And don't stay any longer in the red zone if you have to go in. Don't stay any longer than you have to. That's how you address the probability. Those are both anti-exposure tactics. Continuing. In this case, more than anything else, this means practicing healthy, healthy, and socially established or supported lifestyles. This means building healthy relationships with others, getting an education, starting a career, getting married, having a family, learning to be polite and socially supportive of all people, having good communication skills, etc. In this, the cultivation of a sound lifestyle when combined with the former that is your wellness work on your own wellness work on you not being the probable assaulter to your own self when you combine this sound lifestyle with that wellness the problematizing of all the ways we attack ourselves are pretty much has taken care of every possible threat one is likely to face yet again How many self defense schools do you see actually addressing these things? Nearly none. Again, instead, in practice, most actually support either directly or indirectly socially unsound lifestyles. How's this fit together? Let's just look at where most Aikido martialists talk about the terrain in which their assault happened. Or most martial artists, self-defense industry types, they're always in a bar. Why are they in a bar? Because they're self-medicating. Why are they self-medicating? They're unwell. Unwell in what regards? Unwell in the Buddha's Four Noble Truths unwell. They don't have a mate, they're looking for one. Imagine now, you're married, you have kids, you sought an education, you have a career. You've learned how to be polite and supportive of other people. You have good communication skills, etc. One, demographically, you're not the bar patron. If you are, you're not the bar patron who stays there drinking till long hours trying to find a mate. So you're not in competition for mating. Maybe you go there earlier with your friends you don't need to get drunk because you don't have problems coping with reality. Your drinking is social at best with your inner circle and you're not threatened by anyone else in the in the in the bar. You're gone. That's why a sound lifestyle is an anti-exposure tactic. And again, if you look at true warrior traditions from pre-modern to modern Your lifestyle counted. You were not allowed to act like that demographic acted. So there's rules for officers, for example, in our military, for our law enforcement. And there were huge, mad etiquette rules in pre-modern Budo traditions. And they can all be simplified by, don't be like that guy. And when you're not like that guy, you don't enter the terrain of that guy. Your lifestyle is an anti-exposure tactic and it combined with working on your own wellness where you are not an assaulter to yourself, overwhelmingly, if the first premise of self-defense is the preservation of the self, you are not going to be assaulted. This is self-defense. Continuing. Next come the even more rare cases. Cases wherein we are attacked by others, but wherein our anti-exposure tactics did not or could not function as intended. Here, long before employing physical tactical architectures such as boxing, ground fighting, wrestling, a mistake this industry always proposes, one should utilize battlefield strategies designed to increase advantage. These would include at a minimum a means of gaining terrain advantage, both for assault and for extraction. A means of gaining numerical advantage. A means of gaining an arsenal advantage. And a means of controlling for tempo. Because in real violence, when it really counts, advantage counts. And the same, let's take a technique, let's say it's a takedown, that Takedown's functioning can be entirely dependent upon these other advantages that have nothing to do with the tactical architecture that construct that takedown. So for example, an obvious example, if me and my friends know, we're going to take this guy down. So I have a numerical advantage. I'm going to be able to take that person down way more effectively, which means it has a higher probability of working. If me and my partner work in collaboration, then if I just try on my own to do it. Every takedown gets better when it's done as a team or take the advantage of superior arsenal. So now an assaulter comes in. I don't need... To take them down. I don't need to knock them out. I don't need to throw them. I just need to be able to generate enough space to draw a weapon. This will follow the previously mentioned rule of economy. And this person now is at a greater disadvantage as I bring my weapon into the engagement. And because all I needed was space to draw the weapon, I have acted economically. When it comes to these strategies, I have received a question after this blog was written, where do, you, where do you learn these? These are, again, if you're in the Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, which again is a modern term, but just for ease, it's best to just call it that. If you're in the Japanese Jiu-Jitsu lineage, you're going to want to at least start with Sun tzu. And then some other, and I'll just repeat the, the list I gave. It's a deep rabbit hole, and it, like all fields, it's about continuous study. Okay. So from Sun Tzu, I would definitely be looking at Alexander. I would look at Napoleon. I would look at Rommel. I would read my Clausewitz. And then you can check for bibliographies that cited those people. And now you have more modern contemporary writers from our own military. And now I would also put in there your military manuals, which are available. You can buy them from Amazon. They won't cite them, but once you read those other forefathers, you know they're referring to those earlier writers. So I would read the military manual second. And as I propose to this one person who asked me the question, uh, who has a law enforcement background, Uh, I would definitely read Charles Sid Heal, who not too long ago passed away, but he was a former team leader of LASO, so that's Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, SEB, their SWAT team. And he has several books on, I don't want to call it urban strategies, but, for example, uh, his book on tactical architecture, like how do you read a house, both inside and out, to me, is untouched. Every person that's in law enforcement or ever has to go into a building, that's a must read. But by studying these, you would learn how to generate advantage. Now, there's something that happens in advantage, and it has to do with human predation. Just like with all predators, human predators will weigh advantage, sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously especially the more savvy predators. So you're more capable, you're more lethal, you're more criminal. They will weigh for advantage, and if they determine that there's too much advantage stacked against them, these strategies actually work as a deterrence and as a de-escalation. And following Sun Tzu, and which this idea is weaved into Aikido, the best war is the one you win without fighting. It's the most economical. And that's how you do it. You stack advantage. The assaulter, the predator, which is going to be the other person because you have a well mind and you have a, a lifestyle that is healthy. It's not going to be you. So the other guy, the assaulter, is going to weigh for advantage. And the better they are at fighting, the better they are at violence, like every good predator, every lion, every good hunter, every lion that's a good hunter is going to weigh for advantage, and if they don't have it, they're not going to hunt you, and you've won. But if they do, because they're not very skilled, or because they're that inebriated that they cannot reason properly, and they cannot deduce that the advantage is stacked against them, that advantage is going to be able to be used by you and it is going to make every single one of your actual tactical architectures, that is your techniques, that much more viable. But if you look at the self-defense industry, you study your self-defense devoid of this advantage stacking, totally ignorant, these strategies. And you are trained in a pristine, sterilized environment where the weather is controlled, the friction on the ground is controlled, the angle, the footwear, the clothing, everything is controlled for. Which is ironic because most of the time these self-defense people will talk about it's not realistic. Well, yeah, Your pristine, sterilized environment is unrealistic as well as how your pristine, sterilized environment supports your ignorance of martial strategy and the stacking of advantage. And you're just not trained in these things. You're not trained. Here's the irony. I don't know if you can smell it yet. But traditional Budo, historical Budo, pre-modern Budo, I already said it does train the mind. And I already said it does govern for a sound, healthy lifestyle. And here you see, it does educate you in martial strategy. Not modern Aikido, because modern Aikido is not pre-modern Budo. So in all the Aikido dojo that I trained in, no one one knew Sun Tzu. Klasa who? They didn't read that stuff, you see. But here, here at our school, four-year-olds, five-year-olds are taught battlefield strategy. My kids, started training, and they were learning martial strategy before they were learning any techniques. So you might have seen videos of our, what we call our intro class, it's called IK One. It starts at four years old. And they're all games, but they're not games. They're battlefield strategy study environments. Very much like Ender's Game, if you've read that book. Read the book, don't see the movie. The movie's terrible. Budo's doing these things. Not modern self-defense. Not even the martial side of Aikido. They're not doing it. Continuing. Supporting strategies would then be employed, and these would be aimed at generating deception and at generating a sound legal defense. This is key. I don't know if you saw... Um, Again, because you're going to be doing real violence, you see. It's real violence in a real world. And in real world, you don't get to just do violence. Not, not in the United States. Law enforcement is going to be called. The criminal justice system is going to be involved. Now, look at it this way. Your, your claim, your support of why your violence that you committed on another human being is legal is only going to be based upon your ability to note it as self-defense, which has a legal definition. And it is far, far, far from what, for example, BJJ claims is self-defense. So uh, an example of that, (sighs) names are eluding me right now, but I shared it on our Facebook page. Um, I believe it was Nick Diaz was at a bar. Oh, weird. He's in that male demographic. He's there at closing time of the bar. Oh, weird again. And he gets confronted by another male of that same demographic. Oh, weird. That male is intoxicated. Oh, weird. Nick Diaz chokes him out, does a guillotine on him, lets go, and the guy falls down and falls all the way down to the sidewalk. Nick Diaz is arrested. The guy, again, in Hollywood terms and in in the self-defense rhetoric, which you should understand is an advertisement discourse. The other guy was starting it. He was the aggressor. He was the one pushing it. But that's not how the law thinks. That's not how self-defense works. The legal understanding of self-defense. So Henry Gracie is looking at this video, and and I've seen other BJJ instructors say exactly this thing because they're all repeating it, but none of them are law enforcement officers. None of them are district attorneys. They're not the filing DA. They're not defense attorneys, but they just repeat it because it sells. Because to not repeat it, you'll see, is going to interfere with the business model. They say, Henner says, oh, if only you're supposed to lay him down gently on the ground. And uh, if you don't lay him down gently on the ground, he could hit his head. And that's why they charge Nick Diaz. Not true. The charge is for the unconscious, choking him out unconscious. By law unconsciousness choking someone out punching someone out the loss of consciousness is a felonious assault for self-defense it requires that the assaulter is attacking you at the level or at the imminent level of what is called serious bodily injury and or death level assault and that didn't happen by some guy lipping off to you in front in front of a bar He's just slipping off to you. There's no proportionality there. That's a legal term. Without proportionality, your violence is unreasonable. Without reasonableness, it's going to be hard to claim it's self-defense. You went over. Now, what else constitutes serious bodily injury? What felonious level assault or battery? What constitutes fractures, broken bones? Okay, look at the whole arsenal of BJJ. Take out all the places of possible fractures and all the all the places where you seek and gain unconscious. What is left? And out of what is left, go to your normal BJJ hour of training and see what is actually being trained for the most. And is it that remainder of what is left. It's not. And it's becoming less and less so, as BJJ is adapting more towards rules and weight categories. Older school BJJ and those schools that stay older school, they can use their positional control. They don't have to use the locks and the chokes. And they can use that positional control on bigger, stronger, spazier people. But as the art is rapidly moving away from that, you see less and less control ability. Why, in case you're a listener and you don't do this? Why, why is there less? Well, early on, it was applied, as historical jiu-jitsu was applied, it was applied to people who also wanted to get up. So you had to know how to not let people get up. But now when you train, where you have this kind of um, institutional... Prescription, uh, your points are from doing this or doing that and eventually people don't get up and eventually you will lose the skill of how to keep people from getting up. And where you will lose it most is on bigger, stronger people. If you look at when a highly successful BJJ practitioner gets goes into MMA, why are they not successful as much is because they don't have that skill anymore. Your, your MMA fighter with nowhere near the amount of time doing ground fighting can get up. Gets up, striking weapons are available. A huge part of NEWAZA, Strategy and Tactics, is using the ground to reduce the guy's pugilistic capacity. Well, the assumption there is that you know how to control someone on the ground. The huge assumption there is you can keep them from getting up. Well, that's a skill. It doesn't just come. It doesn't just come because you're doing arm bars and triangles and kimuras. It doesn't just come that way. So again, old school maxim was position before submission, but I have heard world champions now go, that's bullshit. That's getting in the way of you getting that victory. Well, again, they don't realize that you guys have radically changed the environment. You now have weight categories. You took out strikes. It's not Valley 2, though. You, you can't do whatever you want anymore. So now you specialize. Whatever the rule set and whatever the culture is going to take care of, I don't need to learn that as much. So in real world, whenever you apply violence on another human being, it's only going to be legal if you can justifiably argue for self-defense. And that, what I mean is legally meet the self-defense standard, not colloquially, not good old boys, not 18 to 28 demographic kid logic. Because if you don't, you didn't preserve the self because your ass is going to jail or your ass is going to prison or your ass is getting sued and getting financially bankrupted. But if you're doing all these other things, you have your wellness mind, you have your sound lifestyle, you did all this strategy and you stacked advantage, and yet the person, the assaulter, still pressed through with the assault. It is going to be much easier to argue in a court of law that that person was the assaulter. I was defending myself. And this has to be understood. But again, if you go to your so-called self-defense school, there's no legal theory. There's no, you can't, you can't be choking people out and all, all, you know, instead all you got to do is lay them down gently. No! No! And you can't shoot people in the face and then give them a hug. That It doesn't work like that. This is that kid logic of, of men who won't grow up. Continuing. The gaining of such advantage has a de-escalating effect on assailants. And the most tactically savvy of them will actually be deterred from assaulting you. This was already said. Again, how many self-defense schools address these things? Nearly none. In fact, most are 100% totally ignorant of basic battlefield strategic theory. And most actually propose, again, either directly or indirectly, unsound legal defense strategies. Most are going to get people locked up and in court. Last comes the extremely rare cases wherein another assailant, so that means not you, I have a hyphenated phrase there, other assailant. Persist through these strategies and tactics, being not deterred by them. In this case, the greatest self-defense art one can employ is an integrated weapon empty-hand system, one based in non-contestation tactics. All right. Again, go to the self-defense industry. Those that are claiming realistic martial arts, Those that are trying to save Aikido, by being the martial side, by making the Aikido Kihon Waza self-defense, purpose-built, got the segment we're talking about here? It's all, all empty hand fighting. Again, if the first premise is preservation of self, why, why in the world? Would you not arm yourself? You you might want to go. Well, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not uh, possible. It, that's not the first premise. The first premise is preservation of self. There's no there's no supplementary premise. There's no preservation of self as is possible for you. No. In a way, that's what everyone is doing. The very people they're critical of, the Aiki bunnies, they're doing doing self-defense as is possible for them. That's their given level of fitness. That's their given level of commitment. That's their given level of comfortability with pain and suffering. That's their given reconciliation of fear and cultivation of grit. That doesn't make it self-defense. If the first premise of self-defense is the preservation of self, you're not going to purposefully or for the sake of convenience or the sake of uh, culture disadvantage yourself by working unarmed. I'm not talking here about breaking the law. But I don't know of a law or of a state where there's not a workaround. If you're not seeking it, then please stop. You're not interested in self-defense. In the same exact way, as I, as I noted, your first and most likely assailant overall is you against you. If you are not addressing that fact, I wish you would stop talking about self-defense. You're not talking about self-defense. You're talking about something else. If you're talking about self-defense, you're going to arm yourself, and your empty hand system, whatever that may be, is going to be fully integrated paradigmatically with those weapons. It's not an either-or. It's not this or that. It's not this, then that. They go together. So it's not boxing. It's not wrestling. It's not competitive BJJ. No. Those are not your best self-defense system when it comes to tactical architectures. A weapon, empty hand integration, utilizing non-contestation tactics is by far your best self-defense system. Now again, we had the wellness mind, that's in Budo, pre-modern Budo. We had the sound, healthy, supported lifestyle, that's in pre-modern Budo. We had battlefield strategies, that's in pre-modern Budo. We had understanding reality and moving away from the little boy logic of self-defense, that's in Budo. And now we have weapon, empty hand, integrated systems that use non-contestation tactics, and that's in Budo. Weird. Finishing up here. For weapons, at a minimum, this would include knives, clubs, or levers, and handguns. And since weapons are involved, it would also include stop the bleeding wound care. That's in quotation marks. That's the phrase in law enforcement, stop the bleeding. You're looking at uh, your tourniquets, uh, your direct pressure, uh, your occlusive dressings, etc. Meaning your everyday carry would at a minimum have you armed with two knives, one handgun, one spare magazine, and a tourniquet. Any self-defense school proposing contesting tactics and or empty hand tactics is not teaching you real self-defense. They're selling you a product and they're using misleading marketing strategies to do it. It is exactly the same for those self-defense schools that do not first address your own unwellness, your own unsound lifestyle, and your ignorance on battlefield strategy theory. They are not teaching you real self-defense. They are selling you something, something that preys on your egoic mind's tendency to generate a fantasy narrative for your life, one wherein you can act upon your unreconciled will to power, one in which you are the hero, in duplication of Hollywood's preying upon us. One wherein you are the mark in another one of modernity's limbic capitalist marketing schemes. So not said in the piece, but this this is going to that last paragraph there. Why does this speak to us? As said in other podcasts, in other articles, in other writings, we have... For simplicity's sake, two minds. We have the ego-tripartite mind, and then we have the God mind. And modernity and the West, in as, for simplicity's sake, in what Nietzsche has said, the death of God, the westernized human has now had their egoic mind, that ego-tripartite mind, monopolize their experience of the world. And following Aikido theory, yin-yang theory, Silk Road Culture theory, on the nature of humanity, this mind generates within us an experience of the world that is fear-based. And when you look at this marketing scheme and you look at where the demand is coming from, it is coming from fear. And you would think that a human being would because fear leads to suffering, you would think a human being would not want to support their fears, but that's not how this ego-tripartite mind works. There is a codependent simultaneously arising between the identity of the fear, the dichotomous worldview, and the behavioral spectrum of attraction and avoidance. It all comes up at one time, and there is no escape from it as long as you are allowing it to work freely, it just keeps feeding itself, feeding itself. So the fear generates the identity as you as a Aikido martialist, or you as a self-defense expert, or you as doing a martial art that is real. But in that, it reifies the fear. And it's for this reason why you won't seek that Four Noble Truth wellness, why you won't change your lifestyle and address and cultivate anti-exposure tactics because those those practices they're aimed at a cessation of the ego tripartite mind as in real budo and that kind of training is extremely uncomfortable extremely difficult and it is such a, such a nature that its difficulty or the solving for its difficulty is far from guaranteed and that's why you can't sell it. You cannot buy awakening. You cannot buy spiritual maturity. So I cannot sell it to you. I've heard many many people post, they want to share their comments on the dojo's Facebook page, and you'll hear that a lot. Oh, sensei was very bad at transmitting his art. Or it seems that the transmission uh Models are not good because we're not seeing it and this is not understanding the nature of what is being worked on There's no guarantee Those are modern people that are so used to consumerism that there must be something wrong Because I paid for it and it didn't happen. I paid for it. I'm not awakened. What's wrong? You suck Buddha Let's just look at at Buddhism Let's just stick with Zen. Mind-to-mind transmission. Did everyone reach Buddhahood? If that was the case, why are these abbots through history having such a difficult time finding one Dharma heir? Because there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that any human being can discover the way and means of bringing a cessation to that ego-tripartite mind. Now, if we come back to how we got to this blog and we said Aikido is not self-defense, or Aikido Kihon Waza is not self-defense, we now know what self-defense is. And you can see none of that is in really in Aikido Kihon Waza. It's not, it's not in there. Meaning, even though, for example, Sun, Tzu, Sun Tzu's economy of violence and Sun Tzu's anti-exposure tactics is, is interweaved in Kihon Waza. It is not spelled out for anyone. Meaning you can't just do Kihon Waza and you're going to get it. You're going to understand it. If that was the case, we wouldn't see what we see in Aikido today. Most of the Kihon Waza never has a handgun in there. There's no knife in there. Whatever elements we see that come from this, what, this blog on what is self-defense... If it is in Kihon Waza, it's because Kihon Waza, like those strategy and tactics, were developed in a pre-modern culture that used a concentric epistemy. So like Russian stacking dolls, you see the same elements. And another obvious example of this, if we have the Tao De Ching, you can see various chapters within various Kihon Waza if they're done correctly. You go, oh yeah, that's, that's in this technique, that's in that technique. The techniques obviously have to be done a correct way, which most often they're not nowadays. But the, the Lao Tzu, that text, was not written for Kihon Waza. That text is written for r- rulers of territories. Why do they apply in both? Because of the concentric epistemy of these Silk Road cultures. They're, they're going to apply the same truths in every single element of culture. So it would be applied at how to rule a territory. It would be applied on how to, so to speak, rule yourself for awakening or sagehood. And it would be applied to how to defeat an opponent. But that those concentric appearances are not necessarily the particular aim or design element or design motivation for any one of those things. You have to know what else is going on here. So as an example of this, again we'll go back to Chris Frein. He has a theory on the Aikido Kihonwaza. And according to him, he noticed this when he got in a more intense armed sparring situation. And he noticed, ah, my techniques are coming out. But when he went on to derive and he said, oh, my, my techniques are actually for when uh, I'm armed and, it, the training and the level of violence is intense, you'll, you'll see that that won't capture all of the Kihonwaza. But because of the concentric nature of, their, of how they're designed, you would see that, just like you would see some chapters of the Tao Te Ching those kind of reasonings wouldn't capture everything of Kihon Waza. There is something that captures everything of Kihon Waza. And here, as I've said, it's not self-defense. Self-defense does not capture everything that is Kihon Waza, nor vice versa. This deep, deep, I mean, let's look at it this way. Your moksha experience, your, your awakening experience, these are liberations it would be foolish to believe that there's some sort of liberation that can and should take place, but not be a liberation from the institutions of my era, my time, or the cultural fictions of my time. There is a soteriological connection between the need for the archaeology I keep pushing and the spiritual goals of Budo and the development of Aiki, Kokyu, and Takamusa Aiki. And that's where we're going to go next in part two. Thank you for listening. Please take care. Peace be with you. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit SensionCenter.com S-E-N-S-H-I-N C-E-N-T-E-R dot com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.